0: The title of my message today is the preacher and the slave. Sounds like the title of a book. The preacher and the slave. What does that mean? Well, stick around and hopefully the Lord will anoint this and we'll find out. Amen. A common verse that we're all familiar with in 2 Corinthians 5:17. This message was inspired as I was walking the other day, and I had a hat that had 2 Corinthians 5-7 embroidered on it, and it has awesome faith across the front. And I was thinking coming down the hill that 2 Corinthians 5-7 said what verse 17 said. So I started preaching on verse 17, just walking down the hill. There was nobody around me. I don't think there was. If they were, they had a chance to get saved. <laughs> but I was coming down the hill, and I started just... As sometimes preachers do, uh, maybe they do this when they get older, people understand them better then, and just start preaching, just coming down the hill and just enjoying the moment. Anyway, I was enjoying it so much, I thought when I get home, I'm going to have to take a few notes, because this sounds pretty good. Now, how it comes out, we'll just have to wait and find out. But in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things become new. Now, there's three particular things that I want to begin with. First of all, he is a new creature. Now, the word creature in the Greek, I understand, means creation. Something that God redid or remade or created or made. He's a new creature, which means that he once was an old creature. Are you with me? You make something new that was already existing and what it was before, we call it old, whether it was the old man or the new man. The Bible speaks in terms like that. And so if any man is in Christ, he is a, a new creature. Paul wrote many times about this. He told us in Ephesians 4 that we are to put on the new man, which is created in righteousness and true holiness. So when he made a new man, he put something in the man that is designed to come out of the man. True righteousness and holiness, that was what was created in him or made in him. It wasn't in there before. We were never like that. But when we become new creatures, God puts that in us. And the second thing that it said is that old things are passed away. Now, that's what the Bible says for all of us. Old things are passed away, and then behold, like an exclamation point, behold, all things are new. Now, I remember walking down the hill preaching, and I was saying, I've got a problem with this. I don't have a problem with Scripture, but I've got a problem with how this verse is received in the church. And I looked at myself in some areas that uh, I could define, some things that uh, you allow to slip or you allow not to get dealt with, things that maybe that make up your personality, things you let slide. And I think, you know, we have one of the most popular verses probably in the scripture. And yet a lot of people take this verse for granted. See, I'm talking about today the preacher and the slave. And let me talk about the preacher is this. The preacher looks at this verse, and then the preacher wonders, ponders. Now I'm talking about the preacher now. How is it that we can preach this verse, read this verse, dissect this verse, and in teaching, explain what this means? See, if we don't explain things, they just become literature They just become words that you memorize and words that you assume that you're like this because you're in church, you heard that, and you can quote that. And you amen when somebody says that, you amen. But we have to explain what this means so there can be conviction in everybody's life. you got to be convicted about this. What you used to do, you can't do anymore. What you used to do, you got to stop doing. You understand? Because if you keep doing the same old things you always did, then you're not a new creature. Now, that brings conviction. Not that we don't make mistakes or that we don't mess up occasionally. I mean, if we can't even mess up, let's all go home. We shouldn't. But the point that is made is that true righteousness and holiness is what God wants. He doesn't want more of the same old, same old. So the preacher begins to wonder. He said, you know, there's a lot of people that hear this verse of scripture, and they believe that it applies to them because they go to church where that's preached, and they heard about it, and and all of that, and so how is it that having said that, they still remain with their old habits, and their old friends, and their old haunts, They're old places they used to go, the same old corrupt entertainment systems, the same old thoughts that they used to have. They're still lazy, they're still unreliable, you can't depend on them. They say they're committed and I'll go and I'm a member, but you know, they they may not want to, to be there or participate or give or whatever. And if you don't vote for them, if you don't agree with them, they get a little bit upset with you, just like they always were. We were like that before the Lord saved us. We come to the Lord. We're glad we're around friends. We love each other, and we we like the support that we get and the encouragement from each other. But, you know, at home, the wife says, I don't see that much for change. The husband says, well, I don't see much change. And the kids say, I don't see any change at all. Because the same old actions, the same old reactions, the same responses, the same old aggravated personality is still there. Now, we've added church to this thing, and so the preacher wonders, how can any of this, the way so many people who profess to be Christian, how is it they can profess that they are right with God and the old has passed away when they still live the way they used to? They still are like they were before. Oh, they've added the flavor of Christianity to their life. They're a little bit hesitant now to say all the things they used to say, and they kind of catch themselves in a, in a wrong, and I shouldn't say that. But their life's still like it used to be. Now, how many of you know it shouldn't be like that? So the preacher seeing this can't help but see it. It's your job. It's what you do. You watch your watchman. You watch over your flock. You look. You can't always see, but you can hear. You listen. You listen. You don't know if everything you hear is right, but you heard it. And then you wonder, if what I heard was true, how can it be true after so many years of hearing what hopefully is transforming and changing lives? It's not working. Something's wrong. We need to deal with that. So the preacher does that. Now, he should. I don't know that all preachers really care that much. But I think... If God sends one, he should probably be concerned. And so the preacher says to himself as an evaluation, he said, you know the problem here, the problem is the mind. Because the mind is what controls the life. The patterns of thought, your thinking, the things you put into your mind as the way it ought to be or the way it is, and it's what prompts you to do what you do, to say what you say. To react the way you react or be the way and so on and so forth. The old ways dominate. Remember in Romans 6, Paul said, don't let sin dominate you. Let not sin have dominion over you. You remember that? It said, sin shall not have dominion over you. Would you agree with me then? We were in the old life dominated by sin that the promptings of sin which work through the mind urged you to make a decision, to be angry, to fuss, to pout, to fume, throw a little fit. Would you agree with, with me that all of that was the prompting of sin? But if you're in Christ, all things become what? New. Okay, if all things become new, then why is this old sticking around? Why are we getting this same old, same old all the time? So the preacher ponders all this, and he thinks, you know, instead of excusing ourselves and making excuses for why we're not perfect and thus continuing to sin and live in the old, instead of us dealing with what we know we shouldn't be doing or saying what we shouldn't be saying, we ought to repent. Because I think that's what the Holy Spirit prompts always a Christian to do when you're wrong. And when sin rises up and takes a little bit of control, I believe if you're a Christian, the spirit of God arrests you, quickens you right there and says, ah, you stop that. You apologize to the Lord for that. Say you're sorry. That was a bad God didn't teach you to act like that. God isn't making you lazy and corrupt and deceitful and angry and hard to get along with or the bad person. God isn't doing that. Now, you stop it. Would that be something the Spirit of God would do to a Christian? Please say yes. How else would we ever be led to repent? Somebody has to teach us what's right. Because there is a divine response to right. It's a quickening experience. Something goes, that's right. Something comes embedded in your heart and you know it's right and your mind wants to do something else and you're challenged by your heart Said that's not right. Your mind says, that's the way we've always done it. I'm not going to let somebody do that to me or say that to me. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. That's the way we used to do it, but that's not the right way to do it and that old has to pass away. New has to come. You got to be taught. If you're not here to hear it, then there's nothing going to happen in your heart. But when the teaching goes forth, you've got to receive it. Not because the preacher said it, but you should be able to examine the Scripture. After all, you're a new creature now. This is what you ought to be into. This is your new life. You've got to give up the old one. You've got to discard it, hate it, and get rid of it because it will never go away unless you make it go away. You resist the devil. The Bible says he will flee from you. So the preacher begins to say, okay, I'm going to deal with this. And what happens when he begins to deal with this? The people that are, that we're talking about, whoever they are, they get upset. Well, I, don't pre- I don't know if I agree with that guy. You agreed with it 20 years ago. It didn't bother you when you came to the Lord when you were bulletproof and you were 20 years old, it didn't bother you. Now you got a little security, you got a little family, got... Some responsibilities now, and somebody calls attention to the fact that the way you're operating in your life is not new at all. That's the old. Well, you don't understand. I do understand. You don't understand. God never called you to be shrewd and clever. He called you to be a Christian. It's the Spirit of God that gives wisdom, not shrewd and clever, wisdom. He begins to show you how to live. You gotta let go of the old jesus said you got to take up your cross every day there's a reason for that because the cross was made custom made for the old life to die on and so you can't get mad you you need to repent now the preacher looks at all this and he says you know what this new way that god has for christians to live is troublesome it bothers people Let's face it, we're all good guys and good girls. Everybody likes us. Your mother thought you was the finest thing that ever landed in this earth, and daddy too. You're good people, and you really are. I mean, you're not, I don't think there's any bad, ugly people in here. The preacher says, you know, congregations, Christians are having trouble with the message. If it gets too personal, they think it's too hard if it gets down to where you live, where God wants to deal with you and get this trash out of your life, oh, it's too hard. Because by nature, the old life, we don't want to give up what we like. We don't want to give up what we enjoy. We don't want to give up what defines us. I mean, if I'm a big, bad, muscular, look, well, you know how I am. Big, you know, big, bulky thing like I am, you know, And people look at you and they're kind of scared of you. That kind of makes you powerful. Then God comes along and said, put that bulky thing on the cross. I didn't call you into my kingdom for people to be scared of you. I didn't bring you into my kingdom so people would be, oh, wow, look at him." I didn't bring you here for that. I brought you here to be a nobody. I want you to give up everything that's called self and flesh. I want you to hang it on that cross. I don't want you to do anything but yield yourself to the power of God that he can make of you and bring forth in you himself. You're having a hard time with this new way. Commitment is much bigger than you thought it was. It's a daily commitment. I subscribe. I endorse I commit myself to what the Bible says instead of looking around and saying, well, you know, that's good to do that, but I don't know if I'm ready for that. And quite frankly, as I look around the church, none of my buddies are like that either. We're all kind of alike, so there's no big reason to change. And yet your heart smites you. The word of God, like a two-edged sword, says, yes, but whether they are or not, you're not either. Now, God watches over this word to perform it. He said, this is the way we should walk in it. You can't just join church and add Christian ways or flavors to your life. You start giving a little bit or you start attending more or being helpful in the church or doing community things, to whatever. I mean, it's good to do anything that helps other people, but you're a Christian. You can't let your flesh keep ruling in your life by craving the old ways. By finding your pleasure in stuff that God condemns. Whether it's your sinful mouth, or resentment, unforgiveness, copying an attitude. Well, if he's going to preach like that, I'm just not going to go more. You can't do that anymore. You grew up like that. Nothing has changed since you so-called came to the Lord. You're still the same old person you used to be. You can smile now and you know how to sing the songs and lift your hands and clap your hands, but you're the same person you always were. You're easily offended. It doesn't take much to tick you off. You can go back into your little moods you've always had. They haven't been putting on a cross yet. Your kids still know that boy, boy, or your husband knows, oh, boy, or your wife knows, oh, boy. Nothing's changed. There hasn't been a decline in the old way and that actions and reactions of your old life. You've only added church to it. Your wife's not impressed. Your husband's not impressed, whichever way it goes, or your children aren't impressed. Or your parents aren't impressed. Because unless there is a change, unless there is a new something coming forth that's different than it's ever been, something that defines God in you, God working in you, unless it is that, you're not a new creature in Christ. You go to a Christian church of some sort, but you're not a new person. Because you're hanging on to the old, and the idea of letting go of the old is just, oh, boy. And how many of them turn around and go back? Turn to Titus chapter 1 for just a moment. This is one of the most sobering verses. There's a lot of verses that are sobering, but this one is a very sobering verse of Scripture. And it, it defines the way people live who profess to be Christians. Who say they are new creatures in Christ? Who say the old things have passed away? Who say, behold, all things become new? Listen, Titus chapter 1 and verse 16. He said, they profess that they know him. Well, I know Jesus. They profess it. They say it. Because they're trained to say it. Their friends say it. They are taught to say, you know Christ. He said, but... Now, get this, but in works, in what they do, the choices they're making, the way they're conducting their affairs, the things that they do, their works, deny him. Now, is that possible? Of course it is. We've said it all of our lives about people who obviously are not Christian. We used to refer to them back in the old days as sneaking deacons. We caught a deacon one night with... The church secretary in the graveyard of all places, professing Christians, church attendees, officers in the church. They didn't know God any more than they knew where groundhogs were. They knew nothing. They just simply added the flavor of God to their church. Everybody was glad when, especially the man, Came to the Lord, oh, boy, he's saved, blah, 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 blah. But you know what? He wasn't saved. We brought him in, surrounding him. He loved that. He'd never been loved like that in his life. One night, somebody got suspicious because he came to church, and at the end of the song service that everybody sat down, he would leave. And one time, the lady left. And one of the policemen in the church, <laughs> no, one of the guys in the church thought, Huh. So he kind of snuck outside there and watched them kind of go out in the lot get in the same car and drive off. So one night he said, I'm going to follow them, see where they went. You know, like he's a detective. And he followed them out and saw where they went and came back and told the preacher and two or three others. And they went out, surrounded the car like a Christian SWAT team. And, and, <laughs> and, uh, and they caught him. Oh, we're just talking. That's what they are, are just talking. He said, they profess to know God, but in works, they deny him. Notice the three things he said, being abominable. Christians do that? Yeah, because they're never made new. They did abominable things before. They still do abominable things. And they're disobedient, secondly. They don't do what they heard. They hear. They don't do. But for them, they've always satisfied themselves. At least I'm hearing. I never did that before. Uh, you know, that's a big change for me. I'm here to listen, but what I'm hearing, I, I don't know if I'm ready for all of that. So they don't do it. They got friends that don't do it. Nobody convicts them with their lifestyle in the church, so they kind of fit in. He said and unto every good work, he ends at verse by saying they're reprobate. Do you think this guy's saved? If they profess to know Christ, but in works, in what they do, how they live, this is not the way Christ wants you to live. You're denying the Lord that bought you. God didn't save you to be the way you used to be, to be ornery, difficult, hard-headed. The wife doesn't remain that pouting, I want my way or else. She, She changes. She realizes God's role is so much different than what she had before. You got a big major change to make here. Most of them don't want to because they like the old better than the new. So the husband is not impressed with her religion. He doesn't want to go to church because nothing happened to her. She's one of these, woo, but she's just as difficult and hard as she ever was. You know why? Because she's never been a new creature. Old didn't pass away, did it? Don't answer me then, but it's true. You're going to have to come at some point, all of us, at some point in this life, whether today or whenever, you're going to have to deal with yourself and say, am I really an old or a new person? Am I committed to living on his terms? I pray that somebody will teach me what they are. I can read it for myself, but but God anoints people to open up things in a way I haven't seen it before, as God does that. Now, am I willing to let go of anything that offends God that I brought to him in my old life? Am I willing to give all that up and turn away from all of that? Or am I going to stay as I was and justify my actions and make excuses? Well, if you grew up the way I did, you'd understand why I did. Forget the way you grew up. Well, my parents were very, forget your parents. You've got no more excuses because the creative power of God, the one who makes you a new person, gives you all things new so that you can be what he wants you to be. Not fall back all the time and say, well, you know, I will, I will, you know. There's no more there, ya, yah. It's changed now. We are without excuse, the Bible says. For we have a new and living way. We have the very spirit of God the very essence of the Creator God who lives inside of you. And He's in there to do something. And it's not to keep you the way you were, but to deal with you and make you a new creature. Drag your feet? Of course you do. That's why God says, the Bible says, that every son that God receives or daughter, He chastises him. Chastisement, a word which can mean to teach. He teaches him, and then he instructs or disciplines, whether by instruction or by whatever he has to do. God has committed himself to leaving none of us alone. He has committed to leaving nobody in this room, if you're his, to your sins and your sinful, indifferent way. He will not let you alone. And he that started a good work, he alone is going to finish the good work He's going to hound you everywhere you go. When you mess up, when you watch, when you see, when you talk to somebody, that little thing, you unnecessary thing you said to somebody. I'll tell you one, He'll deal with that because he said, I want no residue of the old life left in your life. I brought you to me so I can change you. And I who started a good work, I will finish it. And he will make you a new creature from the beginning to the end. From your side, my side, we have to do whatever we can. We have to listen. I have to make it a priority in my life. Of course, I'm here anyway. I mean, But listening and hearing the word church is a priority for me. I have no other thing that supersedes this. I don't care how tired I am, how difficult the day was yesterday. I'm committed to being here. We all should be because this is where, this is one of those brief moments in the week that we come corporately together to hear the word of the Lord. And that's when I get identified by a little sentence or a verse or a word, something that pricks my heart, something the Holy Spirit said that was for you. And the devil said, well, he's just preaching at you. He doesn't like you. That's why he said that. He knows you a little bit. and he's just trying to needle you. That's what the devil says, but God says what you just thought, what you just felt is what God is doing to get your attention, to change you. Let's go to Egypt for a minute. Let's not out about the slave part of this. A little poem that I know, one of the little parts of the verse says, Out of Egypt long ago the Israelites were led... By a mighty miracle, they were, they were all kept and fed. Through the Red Sea, they did go, the waters spread apart, and God gave Sister Miriam a dance down in her heart. Isn't that good? Yes. You ought to hear me sing it. <laughs> Hide on that hillside, and I'll sing it for you, all right? Egypt. The parallel to what I've been saying here for the last three or four minutes is paralleled the church and the way people are. Let's go back to Egypt and figure out what our, what our problem here is. In Egypt, the Hebrews were slaves. They had been slaves for 400 years, or 430, depending on how you read it. 400 years of being a slave. What happens to a person's life, their mind, their ambitions? after 400 years of having no rights. You don't have to make decisions. The responsibility you have is nothing more than getting up in the morning and do what somebody told you, and you better do it right. You're going to make pyramids. The world's going to wonder about them, or you're going to make something. You're going to stomp straw all day and make mortar. You have no right. You're not educated. You don't have to be educated. Being smart is not in your program. Figuring out things is not in your program. You can have children, have a family. There's food plenty to eat in Egypt. But as far as you personally, you're a zero. You're the lowest form of a symbolic nation there is on this earth. Other countries had leaders and rulers and jobs and armies and things, mm-mm, not the Hebrews. They were nobodies. They were nothings. They were trained to be nothing. Their mind was nothing. They were slaves, living, as the Bible said, in bondage, in the oversight of other people. They were not allowed to be what they could have been. They had no God, no form of worship. They saw what the Egyptians did. They had nothing. They didn't know God. They didn't know anything about him. And all they did was stomp bricks and do this and do that. They had a resignation. They didn't realize it. They, were, they had a resignation to a slave mentality. I cannot help but who I am. I cannot help what I do. This is the way I am. This is the way I'll always be. I remember in India the nation of India years ago, back in the early 80s, I was in India. And they have classes in India. They have a caste system. And the ones on the bottom are taught they can never be anything but what they are on the bottom. They can never rise above that. They're always gonna be the least of the least in the nation. Nobody ever tried to advance themselves. Nobody was ever motivated. They were, as far as they were concerned, they were nothing but trash. I remember when I was teaching, telling them, I guess you should be more careful politically how you say things, but I didn't really care because I knew the Bible was right. And I, don't, and I said, I don't care who you think you are or who you are in the minds of everybody else. You can be whatever God wants you to be. You can rise above it and begin to teach on faith for five days over there. But here we go back to Egypt. They were slaves. They thought like slaves. They acted like slaves. There was always somebody to blame for their problems, always. They were continually in a slave victim mentality mind. They can't help it. What can I do? It's not my fault. uh, They were slaves. Then Moses came. Moses and Aaron And he said, God's going to set us all free and deliver us and take us to a land that he's given us. And, of course, being slaves, they said, what are you talking about? You know, they're sitting in church. They said, what's all this about? uh, Wait, excuse me, me, let me go back to Egypt. I got this church for me, excuse me. So they went back and they said, well, who is this God you're talking about? And Moses said, I am, you are what? No, that, that's his name, I am. I exist, I be. That's, God is, God is, he is. And you can imagine the mentality they had, he just is, but we don't know what he looks like or where he is. No, but I'll, let me show you what he does. And for the, there were 10 plagues that took place to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. These were called signs and wonders. And it devastated the nation of Egypt. I mean, it devastated from the foliage to the animals, the lice, the fleas, and the water turning to blood, and the firstborn. I mean, just wave after wave, ten plagues that absolutely devastated the country before eventually it devastated their army, made them a nobody. He did that for one reason, to bring these slaves out of bondage. So he did all of these wonderful signs and wonders. He brought them out. They didn't know who he was. And it didn't take them long when they arrived in the great classroom of the desert to realize how fleshly and indifferent and difficult these people were. Talk about stiff-necked and hard-headed. How would you know if a slave is stiff-necked or hard-headed? How could you ever discover that a person who is a slave is stiff-necked and hard-headed? You'd think they'd just be humble all the time. and everything. Yet the Bible says one of the worst things that happens in life is when a slave becomes a ruler. How would he know how to treat anybody? How would he know how to respect somebody's feelings? Nobody ever respected his. So these slaves were led by these mighty signs and wonders through the wilderness out there, and they came out through the Red Sea. They did go. The waters spread apart, and all these people came out of the Red Sea, and then the sea opened, closed up on all this army. And God told his people, don't ever forget this. You did nothing but walk. And God did everything else. Even the 40 years they wandered in the desert, they didn't get cold. They had a fire by night. They had a cloud by day to keep them being burned up. How they got it, I don't know, but there was grass and fodder for their multitudes of animals. There was water for everybody to drink in a desert. Now, Bonnie and I saw the desert last time we were over there, the wilderness of Judea. I don't think a lizard could live in that place. I don't, I'm serious. I don't know how anything that has blood or life in it could live in that desert. Yet there were animals there. But it's one of the most arid, difficult places you'll ever see in your life. And that's where he led them. He led them to a place like that. And they were starting to have trouble with that too. Do you realize that when God saves you, he doesn't send you a, a sort of perfect sleeper? or coupons for Big Macs. He doesn't give you that. He never made anything easy for the Hebrews, but he protected them. There wasn't a feeble one amongst them. Amen. The Almighty God brought them out to the classroom. Come, children, through the Red Sea. Okay, let's go to the desert. Now, this is going to be your home for a while. We don't like this. Now, God didn't say it. I would say it, but it's too bad because where you were moaning and groaning about the way it was before when you were in Egypt and you were crying about all of you were whining. Now, don't you start whining out here in the desert because they're out of your program now. I've got you now. You're out here where I'm going to take care of you. We don't have any water. All right, Moses, hit the rock. And it seemed like for the next 40 years, every rock they hit, I mean, there was water everywhere where there was a rock, there was water. I'm making that up. But there was water. We don't have any flesh to eat. All right. <sniffs> here come the quail. We don't like this man. It's the same old, same old. Every time we come out here to eat, the same old, same old. Do you suppose God would have ever been upset with his people? Would he ever be upset with his church? Because they do the same thing. They act the same way in a civilized society in homes where grass is growing in the yard outside, no desert. But Sometimes your life feels like you're in a desert. Well, they wanted to go back. They wanted to go back to the same old ways. They didn't want to give up their old ways. They were hard-headed and difficult people. Turn to Numbers chapter 14 and verse 2. They didn't want to have to start fighting. They didn't want to have to resist the devil. They didn't want to have to go through that. Christians don't like to fight either. They don't like to have to take up arms and draw your swords and, and fight a devil you can't see but you can feel. I'm talking about right now, today, in Christianity. People don't like it, so preachers quit preaching about it and leave you alone to your feelings and your cravings and the old life because you give money they won't say anything to you they're leaving you alone to a slow death numbers 14 verse 1 it says and all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried and the people wept that night why Because the 12 spies had just returned after being gone all that time in the promised land, and they came back saying two things. Yeah, the land is what God said it was. Whoa, it is a lush place, but nobody can live that way. That message is too hard. It's too legalistic. Oh, that message will put you in bondage. So what does that do? Well, you look for something less. Where was it less Egypt the old ways stay with what you had in verse 2 look at this and all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron and against brother Ta- no and the whole congregation said unto them the whole congregation would God that we had died in the land of Egypt or would God we had died in this wilderness Why would they say that? Because now they have to cope. In the old life, you didn't have to fight anything. You just complain. It's not fair. But you can't do anything about it because you don't know what to do about it. Now you come to the Lord, and everything that used to be has to change now. you got to start fighting. Don't give in to that. Throw away all your alcohol stuff in your house. Quit doing this. Quit hanging around that. Quit watching that. Quit going there. Huh? That old has to die. God will judge you if you don't. He's righteous and holy because that's what he's birthed in you, righteousness and holiness. He doesn't want this other stuff to stay in your life. You're his. But no. Would to God we had died in the world. Look, put your finger right there and turn to chapter 1 of this book and look at verse 42. The whole congregation, which probably refers to those 20 years and older. How many were there? How many men were there? Young men, 20 years old and up, they call that the congregation. How many of them were there? You're getting close. You're, I heard of six. 603,000. 550 men. Now that's a lot of men. That's the number of men, not women and not children, which is probably double that, that came out of Egypt. Let's say a million three. And 603,550 all agreed that we don't like what God is doing. We don't like the I am bringing us out here where we don't know what to do. We don't, we don't have anything to eat except stuff that comes up at night, stuff that flies in in the day, and water out of these rocks. I guess they still work. And all we're doing is standing around in the desert, we're not making anything, we don't, we're not going anywhere, we're not building something. This couldn't be God. So they begin to complain. They begin to run their mouth. They begin to com- criticize and complain about this and about that. And God heard that. Go back to Numbers 14 and look at verse 29. Your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number. How many are there? 600 and say three. 3,500 and say 50, 50 men. 20 years old and up, that's what he said in chapter 1, verse 46. In verse 29, he says, from 20 years old and upward, which were, have murmured against me. Every one of them did. What kind of an atmosphere would you have if 600,000 men were complaining? 600,000 men were complaining. Two of them didn't. Of all that crowd of the city of Louisville, or the mountain folks would call it Louisville, the city of Louisville, or greater Louisville, 600,000 men in unison were complaining and clamoring against what they were doing. But two men said, stop it. We are well able to take the land. We can do what God said. Let's go, Caleb and Joshua. And the people looked at them like, See, this is what's wrong with the church right here. We got that in the church. You talk about when Jesus said, many shall seek to enter and only a few will enter. Two out of 603,000 is truly a few. That's not many. Would you say that two out of 603,550 is a few? That's very few. That's a little microscopic Many few. But this is what we're supposed to see. Remember Romans 15, 4, does somebody know what that says? How about you preach, you bigger preachers than my little preacher. can y'all still read? Somebody find Romans 15, 4, my, my preacher bunch up here. Come on now, somebody has to read it when you find it. Whoever finds it first, reads it first, okay? All right, read it, Isaac. Read it loud now so they can hear you. For whosoever things were written aforetime, were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. All right, whatsoever things were written aforetime. Is that what it said? What was aforetime? Right here, old times, in times gone past. The things that the prophets and the teachers and the farmers, 1,500 years of men recording, writing it down, God put it together. 1,500 years, they're saying the same thing. Wow, that's God. And Paul said the things that were written then are for us today to learn something from. Now, when you look at the Israelites led out of Egypt, what are we learning? What are we supposed to see? We see a picture of man's problem. It's his mind. It's his thought patterns. It's men who don't deal with their mind, but let their minds rule them and convince them. And then when they don't want to do it, they say, well, you're a victim. You can't help it. Nobody's perfect. So you can back off and do whatever you want to. And the people murmured against Moses. Go to the book of Exodus and look at chapter 16. Exodus, chapter 16 and verses 2 and 3. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron. And they said again, and the children of Israel said to them, Would to God we had died in the land of Egypt. Uh oh, when we sat by the flesh pots and when we did eat bread to the full. Now you've brought us into this wilderness. Our parents wonder about us, our friends don't like us anymore. I wasn't voted cheerleader. Wait a minute, let me get, excuse me. Oh yeah, and you have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly with hunger. Now we're accusing God of being against us. That's the slave mind. That's the way you think when something has controlled your mind. When a system of the darkness of this world has controlled the way you think. And the way you put things together, that's why you pout, that's why you complain, that's why you're critical, that's why you're lazy, that's why you're indifferent, that's why you don't want to try, that's why you want to be yourself, that's why you make excuses. Because you got a slave mind. It is controlled by something besides God, and because your will is in your mind, you allow it. But you don't resist. If you don't resist, guess what? Well, the preacher keeps wondering. The preacher keeps preaching. Listen to what he said. You don't have to turn to this. In Psalm one hundred and six, Psalm one hundred six and Psalm one hundred seven describe the exodus and all the problems that people had. Long psalms, but they are stories. They're narratives about this this time. He said in Psalm one hundred six, verse twenty four: "Yea, they despised the pleasant land. They believed not his word, but murmured in their tents." and hearken not unto the voice of the Lord. They went home and complained about it, and then they decided they weren't going to receive all of that. The preacher looks at that and he says, how can you pastor that? Now, I'm not accusing you. I'm just making a point. Because I got better ideas and better things and better beliefs for you all. But this is the picture that you see with what happens when God brings you out of the world and brings you to him. It's not convenient. Not everybody can live this life. Not everybody wants to. The Bible said, Jesus said, they shall seek to enter in, but they will not be able. Because something will not allow them to make that kind of a decision, to let go of it, to enter into the kingdom. They will not do it. They're around people that didn't let go of things, and they said, well, I'm sure they're going to heaven, so I don't have to let go of mine either. We're all going. No, you're not. It doesn't work like that. There is a way that seems right. We've said that for the last month. There is a way that seems right. That's the way of death. These people were ruled. These people were ruled by their patterns of thinking. They confessed they would die. They confessed there was no water. They were confessed it's too hard. They were confessed they wanted to go back, didn't they? Aaron, where's Moses? Well, he's up there on the mountain talking to God. How do we know he's still alive? Something might have got him. Make us a god. Let's go back to Egypt. Six hundred thousand people can put the heat on you. You can say I ain't going back to Egypt. Well. Give me your earrings and your jewelry and stuff. Give me some gold. And he gave it to somebody, and they fashioned some kind of a creature. And then they said, here, Israel, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. I, you know, we think, oh, that's so silly. How many Christians have things that they're trusting in and counting on that not God? How many? I don't know. I don't keep records of that. I'm running out of pages in my own notebook to keep notes about myself. Let me say this. Let me say it once. There's something about the human nature that if in a religious context, if you don't lean on people and deal with them and drill them, they'll go back to the old. You've got to lean on people all the time as Christians. You can't leave them alone. And I don't feel good about that. I don't. If I feel like I, man, I don't sit there and say, I got them today. I don't think I've ever said that. All I can think of is, man, I hope they can deal with that. Because you don't want to see everybody just lose the victory and give up. Fight. Overcome. Quit being the way you used to be and trying to act the same way. Give it up. Die. Go to the cross. Crucify your flesh with its affections and its cravings and lust. Die. Give it up. It's the enemy of God. Paul wrote, he said, among whom we also had our conversation in times past and the lust of our flesh, Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. Did you know that before God brought you to him, you were by nature a child of wrath? That's Ephesians 2 and 3. You were by nature, or I could say you were naturally trained by the world and its systems to be evil. To think wrong. Your closest friends were people you agreed with whom you were like, most like and most like you. That's why it's hard to give up your, your friends when you become a Christian, knowing you can't hang around that. So most of them just give up, give up their Christian convictions in order to keep their friends. you got to do what you got to do. Turn to Romans 12, and we'll begin to close. Of all those 603,550 men... How many escaped? Somebody say two. Why did they escape? Because one, they agreed with God when it was not convenient. And secondly, they were committed to agreeing with God. Whatever he said, that's what they would do. When it came time to give the land out, he said, Caleb, what do you want? He said, give me the land where the Anakims, that's the giants. Give me the giants. And uh, he said, you're 85 years old, bud. Giants are just a whisker above normal of being bad than you ever were. Caleb said, I'm as good a man right now as I ever was. As I was at 40, I am at 80. Give me the land. Amen. That old fellow went down and whooped them all. By the grace of God. You know why he was strengthened even at that age to do the wonderful things he did? Because he stood in agreement with God when it was most inconvenient. Because when he stood on God's side, 603,550 people wanted to stone him because he was different. Do you think it's going to be any different with you all? Do you think society loves your stands if you have them? You think they like your commitment to to right speech and right actions and, and being loving and kind, dying to self, not demanding your way? Do you think they they love that? They can't stand it. And if you give in because of their pressure, well, you're one of the six hundred three thousand five hundred and fifty. Or you could be one of the two. But here's what happened. Here's what the preacher concludes. Concerning the slave mind. Begins with verse 1, of course. You present yourself unto God. What kind of a sacrifice? Living. While you're alive. While you're breathing, able to make decisions in charge of your life and your family. Now, while you're alive, present yourself unto God a living sacrifice to be for him and unto him whatever he wants. Now, you don't know a lot of people that are there. There's a lot of people that will be there, but right now a lot of people just don't have the courage maybe to do that. That's why he told Joshua, be of good courage. You're going to stand against all these people. They're going to think you're nuts. Just do what I tell you. So he said, present yourself a living sacrifice unto God. Because I'm not asking too much of you when I ask you to do that. He goes on to say at the end of that's your reasonable service. And our verse, and we'll close with this. Be not fashioned. Be no longer the way you were. Be no longer in the mold of the ways and the cleverness and the acceptance of the world. Don't be like that. Don't be fashioned after this world, but be transformed, metamorphosis, be changed into a new image. But I thought I was a new creature. You were a new creature. You've got a new heart. You didn't get a new body. You get that at the resurrection. You didn't get a new brain, though you had the mind of Christ in you. But the same old brain you sinned with your whole life, you still got it. The same old patterns of ugly slavehood thought, thought process, you still got it. Now all of your old life is going to be challenged by the word of God. As often as you're willing to confront the word and listen to it, you're going to be challenged by it, to conform to it. Be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind for one purpose, that you may prove what? What the will of God is for you. So there you are about to cop an attitude. Is that the will of God? What about in your face? Let me tell you something, buddy. Is that the will of God? How about just tucking it in, taking it, and turning the other cheek? Is that the will of God? How about anything when it's there to ask yourself, what is the will of God for me to do? Would God want me to wear this? Act this way? Would he want me to hang around that, those kind of people? When I reach a judgment against somebody, I ask myself, is that the way God wants you to think? No, then don't do that. Repent and quit doing that. Would God want you to drive around the, at the mall eight times in front of, what's that Lacy place called? Victoria's uh-huh, Victoria's <laughs> Secret. God would have you do what Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon a maid. I will not do that. It's amazing how when you see that, you can do that, or you can change the channel, or you can turn your head and look the other way. Somebody steer the car. I don't want to run over somebody, but somebody steer the car. (laughs) Or some of these companies that make clothes for kids, it is an abomination. And something in you says, that's not the will of God for me to wear something like that or dress like that. All I'm doing is conforming to the world. Or all your ignorant tattoos, if you have one, you went and got them. You're just conforming. That's just the, You think it's the will of God for you to mark your body? Leviticus says it's a, it's a crime. It's a sin to do that. You do it because you want to be, yeah, I'm like y'all. It's the world. The Bible said, don't be like the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Until you start thinking, right? Until the word of God has this effect in your life, you're going to conform. So you see, in closing, we've been brought out of darkness. We have here. We've been brought out of darkness. We've been brought to God. God, that we have to learn who he is and know him better. And he brings us to him and he says, I love you, I care about you. I've prepared a place for you. Whoa, you're gonna love where you're going. In the meantime, you're gonna hate what I'm gonna do. Because if you don't do it, you, well, I have a way of getting your attention and he does. But let me tell you something, the end of a thing is better than the beginning. And when you can stand before God, when we can all together stand before God with Caleb and with Joshua without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, there'll be divine gladness in our heart that we stayed with it. Amen. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus. We are thankful this morning, as much as we know how to be, for the good and wonderful way you've led us and you've kept us just like you did the Israelites. We look back with wonder and how you provided our needs, you have sustained us, you brought us through fire and through water. The journey's not over, but we've come through some difficult times, we're still here we give you thanks this morning for loving us that much. And while we know we're not perfect yet, I pray in the name of Jesus that this church and this congregation will begin to experience healthy convictions about their life and their direction. That when this life is over, Lord, that none of these would perish. For you have said, that you're willing to save all that hear what you have to say, all of them. And I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.